My guest today, Ellen Harper, has been around the folk music scene her whole life. Her mother, Dorothy Chase, performed and taught banjo and guitar at Hecht House back in the 50s in Boston with Bess Lomax Hawes and her dad, Charles Chase, repaired pretty much any and all instruments that came his way. Then Ellen learned to play and perform and teach guitar and other folk instruments at her mom's knee, and eventually the family moved out west to Claremont, California, where they created the iconic Folk Music Center that became this hub for all of the biggest names in folk, from Dylan to Joan Baez, Pete Seeger, as well as a huge community of lesser-known yet equally important players. And Ellen's kids grew up in that same place, surrounded by those same people, and in fact, one son, Ben Harper, caught the music bug and has since become an acclaimed singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist in his own right. Back in 2000, Ellen participated in Ben's documentary, Pleasure and Pain, filmed by iconic rock photographer Danny Clinch, who has also been a guest on this podcast, and that led them to collaborate on an album, Childhood Home. Ellen's latest project, Light Has a Life of Its Own, is a collection of her original songs reflecting the unusual musical heritage that has really defined and shaped several generations of Chase Harper's. Ellen currently runs the Folk Music Center, the Claremont Folk Festival, and teaches music classes, and her new memoir, Always a Song, is this wonderful journey, not only through so many of the stories of her life, but also the history and the world of folk music. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. We have a, a, a kind of a fun point of intersection. So I think it was what, uh, 2020, um, you guys connected with Danny Clinch. Yeah. To uh, do that documentary, Pleasure and Pain, right? Ben's first documentary. Yeah. And uh, Danny's actually been on the show yeah. for all of his work for decades and decades, uh, shooting music around the world. Yeah, he's really something. He, he? is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. He just seems to be there when the time is right, you know, <laughs> snapping a photo and... Yeah. He does. He has that, that that kismet where he's just like right place, right time, but over and over and over and over. Yes, exactly. And you know, he did the um, the documentary for the album Ben and I did, Childhood right. Home. Yeah, yeah, which was actually a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I love that one as well. Um, 
you know, I want to take a little bit of a step back in time. You come from a family where there, it seems like there are going back generations, there has been this strong commitment to um, advocacy and activism, sometimes like rising to the level of being subversive, strongly counterculture. Um, all, it, it sounds like going back to at least your grandma Elba. Yes, back to Elba and uh, Elba and Fred, for sure. And um, my mother's parents were socialist when they got here. You know, the Jewish coming from, uh, well, one from near Kiev and one from uh, Eastern Europe. And um, I mean, socialism was just part of the culture in, in a large part it uh, before the demonization and so on. But um, but yes, you can certainly trace it back to, to my grandparents, Fred and Elba. Yeah. T- tell me a little bit more about them because it, it seems like uh, at a time where a lot of people were sort of like the ethos was kind of keep your head down and your, and your mouth closed. They didn't follow that at all. <laughs> well, they didn't. And for a time in this country, you could be a, a member of the Communist Party or the Socialist Party. Um, my grandfather, Fred, led the Farmers' March on Washington, the New Hampshire, New England contingent. So he was very involved in active politics. And my grandmother was right there with him. And her politics really kicked in, though, after he died. He died young. He had rheumatic heart. And, uh, but she was an amazing person. She began the first birth control clinic in New Hampshire. She was a nurse. She delivered babies all over the place. And, and she ran for gov- uh, governor of New Hampshire on the Communist Party ticket, which she didn't get very many votes. But because she was always there for the neighbors and their babies, uh, she was beloved. And when she was in jail, I don't think this part made it into the book, the jailer was so appalled at having Elba Chase in his jail that he sent his wife out for linens and a tea set so she could have, have her tea. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, and, and, and it seemed like that, you know, that ethos that you develop a strong set of beliefs and you stand behind them and you do that in a public way has really just continued on through the generations. I mean, with the... Um, you know, your dad ends up in a really interesting place as well earlier mm-hmm. <laughs> in the early years. Mm-hmm. He certainly does. Yeah. With the, uh, with getting fired, it was a very dramatic time, very impactful time. And of course I'm seeing this activism, communism from a seven-year-old's view and, uh, and how it affected us personally as a family. And I'm not sure, you know, that the the conventional narrative, if you want to call it that, has hidden the Communist Party and what they stood for and what they were. Socialist Party, people of color, underrepresented people. It's not in our textbooks. And uh, if we're lucky, maybe we'll get a taste of it. You know, labor history as well in college, if we get there. So it's a, a benighted attitude and and a demonization and marginalization that works very, very well for the time. And I think we see strains of it today, actually, with the words and the names. Yeah, it's we are in this interesting moment. I mean, but when, so your dad was, I guess he was teaching, um, but because of prior associations, um, m- more closely aligned and publicly aligned with the Communist Party, I guess in the, mm-hmm. in the 30s-ish. Yes, exactly. When McCarthyism starts to hit this country, he starts to become a target. Yeah. And like so many other of, of that that season becomes blacklisted, which effectively mm-hmm. ends his ability to work. Ends his ability to earn money, yes. He was hired at a garden shop because uh, Grossman's was very smart. They knew they could pick up these people that had no other options and pay them nothing. And they were hard workers and you could count on them. But I sometimes I think of that time with my father and what he stood for and his ideals and his principles. But if he, for instance, if his ideals and principles were such that he um, supported war and he supported a biased curriculum and he supported racial and cultural um, misunderstandings and supported a corrupt school board and co- 
he would have kept his job until he retired, which is, I've always thought, it was an interesting perspective to take on what was happening. Yeah, as as you mentioned, you, you were single day, digits in age when all this was happening, yeah. like six, seven, eight years old. Did you, I know upon reflection and upon conversation, you know, it's become much clearer. I'm curious whether when you were actually that age, whether you remember if you, how aware were you of the truth of what was really happening around you? Well, I know into in that intellectual part of, of the brain, you know, my parents would, would explain it, but seven, even eight is a little young to comprehend that because what I comprehended was that nobody liked me. I had no more friends. I couldn't go to people's houses. I couldn't go to play. I couldn't go to the library. I was pretty much just at home and school was a torture. And, um, and that's what it meant to me at the time. Although perhaps what my parents said, particularly my father explained how they explained it, it probably sank in, in some aspect. And because of the lack of understanding that was facing me, it did make me angry. And I think sometimes the anger was better than just defeat. Yeah. I mean, that's the anger that I think so many of us draw upon, you know, in some way, shape or form as fuel to invest energy and change, right? When it raises to a certain yeah. level, but, but to feel that, I think even as adults, we often struggle on how to, how to channel that feeling, that emotion, that energy, you know, and then when you're talking about a young child, really not yet equipped to understand what do I do with this? It can become yeah. tough. <laughs> it's tough and it does, it stays with you. I know I, I still have to I have to buck up my energy or my courage to talk about it. Just to say the word communist, communism, is uh, it's like a, a ping of fears that still exists. And I know, you know, I, I mentioned that I had done a dissertation when I interviewed these teachers who had been fired for their beliefs. It was the same thing. There was a lot of fear that just continued to live on. Yeah, and and I guess the um the sort of ostracization that that came around that time from this was not so much that people automatically saw you as bad, but I think, uh, you know, my understanding of that time is really a lot of people were just concerned for themselves that if they were seen as associating with somebody who, you know, was, was on this list, that they would be assumed just by association to be quote one of them and end up in that same place. And they were terrified for their own family's security. And that was a lot of, it was like, you know, like, look, I like you and we resonate and have the same values that we had two days ago before this news came out. But I'm terrified about what's going to happen to my family if we stay in conversation. That's right. And that's what made McCarthyism so effective. If employers hadn't jumped on that bandwagon, if they hadn't been able to to get people fired and lose their income and, and marginalized in the fear, it simply would not have worked. Yeah, and he could have called all the names he wanted, but that's what essentially made it work. That fear, and you're absolutely right, guilt by association, uh, fellow travelers. You could be named for no reason, and then you were stuck. If you were called, you either had to name names or you were defying the uh, committee. Yeah, you end you end up in that same place. Um, yeah. So your dad ends up effectively being pushed out of his job and, and yeah. like we said, really hard for him to find work. Um, at the same time, your mom is pretty, it sounds like pretty deeply immersed in the world of music from your youngest years, you know, as, as well. Yes, she always was. I, I always remember her with a banjo and competing with the banjo, <laughs> probably more competition than my sister's, but also it just being such a part of our lives. And really, I think the salvation of the family during the hard times, you know, the music and that all of our fellow travelers, all the, um, the people that thought like us, felt like us. And uh, really, you know, that, that post-World War II optimism that it was going to be a world of peace and justice and uh, equality. And, um, you know, we beat the fascists. We, and, uh, and then that, just disappointment, just with with the McCarthyism. But there was always a crew that held together, and um, it, we saw each other through. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how music can become 
it can serve so many purposes. You know, on mm-hmm. the one hand, it's a beautiful form of creative expression, but it's also it can be the glue that brings together and holds together community. It can it can say so much. It can be a form of activism, right? And and it seems like really for um you and as you described that, you know, the people that your family traveled with, it, it was all of those. It was those. Yeah, when I think about it, you know, especially in the Boston scene, which is quite active. I mean, people came to, I, I think I might have said this in the book, to my mother's classes and to the Hecht House and, and joined this. A, a lot of them joined for the music and then learned about the politics. But there were many that came for the politics and then learned about the music. But the music and the politics were, very, were hand in hand. It, there wasn't just... It wasn't a separation. Um, you know, we sang or they sang because it brought people together and it made people feel stronger. You know, that collective voice is very important. Yeah. And, and I mean, the music that we're talking about, I'm actually curious, you know, when it was really sort of first emerging, whether this, you know, the word folk music was the moniker or whether sort of over time people started to call it folk music and, um, I, you know, I guess there's a curiosity in my mind also, which is, you know, when we're talking about folk music, what are we actually talking about? Well, that question has been tossed around and beaten to death halfway to, by ethnomusicologists forever. And, uh, you know, it's, it's when you, you kind of don't want to jump right in the middle of it. And I'm not an ethnomusicologist. But to me, it's just the conglomeration of all of the music of all of the people that sang either on their porches in the homes or in the union halls or out on the picket lines or unions, civil rights. And before that, it's people sang. People sang in their parlors and they sang in the fields and they sang in their saloons and they sang in their salons. And And I, I think the, we have to name it because nowadays we have to genreize everything in order to sell it. And so you know, what is roots? What is Americana? What is blues? What is, you know, they all came from people singing, mostly singing to just express their feelings and their troubles and, uh, or try to, try to make life feel a little better. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting the way that we've sort of, the industry says it has to be in a bucket because we don't know what to Mm -hmm. do with it or how to sell it or market or distribute it unless we can say like, this is the bucket, this is the category, this is where it gets filed. But, um, But that's all more of something that was imposed over time from a business standpoint rather than how it emerged organically. Yeah. And, and, you know, the lines do blur. You know, my parents believed in playing music for community. And that's what the Folk Music Center has become and, and is, is a place for community for people can come and sing, they can come and jam. And they, well, it used to anyway up until COVID. And it's not about making money and it's not about being famous. But those the lines blur when we could take the Kingston Trio, for instance. Without that commercialization, who would know about a lot of this music? So it does it brings it to the attention. It did have its its flash in the pan, you know, it was very and faded away and but it didn't go away and it didn't disappear. And it comes back, and it comes back with "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou," which is another form of bringing forward traditional music. And even if it kind of came from top down rather than bottom up, yeah, that is. You just referenced attention that I've always been curious about. You know, which is this attention between folk music in particular and money, and sort of quote making it on a bigger stage. Um, trying to remember, it may have actually been the doc that you and Ben did with Danny more recently where he described success in the context of folk music or the mo- music that he plays also. And really it was, it was almost like if, you know, it, it has nothing to do with success on, on the mainstream with the, with the mainstream stages, you know, with the big labels, with popular uh, audiences and yet at the same time, like you said, if part of it is about building the community and also sharing the messages within the music, then it would seem like the greatest reach would make the biggest difference. And that 
comes, you know, almost exclusively from sort of like the more modern definition of success. Yeah. It, it used to be called selling out. Yeah. <laughs> you remember? <laughs> oh, he's a sellout. That's why you made right. it. I'm just going to, you know, sit here and busk on the corner. Um, and there was something to be said for that, you know. But nowadays, how is a musician supposed to survive if they can't sell a jingle? If they can't, if their song doesn't get used in a commercial, doesn't get picked up by movie. I mean, that whole level of of being able to support yourself with your music, there was, you know, marginally maybe, but you could go out on a small tour to clubs, coffee houses. You could stay in people's houses. You could sell your CDs, your merchandise, and really get get by. But I don't think that's even hardly possible anymore. And you can't, there's no merchandise. I mean, you don't make anything. I think I've made a seventh of a cent or something on my, anything that streams. Yeah, it is. I mean, the industry has really changed in um, pretty substantial ways. And, but that tension, I feel like it still hasn't entirely gone away, you know, where there's the, you know, stay pure to what it's all about. And and the other part of it is not just to you know, like spread the word and have the music go far and wide, but also it's the economics of being able to do this as you're living, you yeah. know, which is, well, what if, what if you really want to make this your thing? You kind of have to push to get to a place where, um, you know, you're doing okay, <laughs> which is, yeah. Or keep a super low overhead, uh-huh. you know? Stay in your parents' basement or something, <laughs> because you're going to have to make a choice somehow. Either keep a low overhead or make a lot of money if you want to live more luxuriously. Yeah, which which I think is you know an easier decision to make when you're younger. But then when you're thirties, forties, fifties, if you yeah. have a partner in life and a family, and you know the decisions aren't just about you anymore. I think it's a, the place that so many musicians find themselves in, you know, which is like, this is the thing I feel I'm here to do. And yet, you know, there are these other values that really matter to me. And it's just this yeah. attention that I think doesn't leave a lot uh, of people. You know, it is, it's for sure. It's, it's that tension is there and we certainly see it. And a lot of people make the choice to, to have music as more of a hobby, you know, and that's fine too. And a lot of people may come to terms with it. You know, you talk to people that have made it, you know, um, at some point in time and are now older and they're just going around playing music and enjoying the heck out of it. Some people do become bitter. Like why, why me? Why didn't I make it? Look, I'm good. And they have every reason to think so. I mean, fabulous players, singers, songwriters that didn't make the money it's not not a fair business by any by any means but yes you're right that the tension <laughs> commercial versus versus community or tradition i guess i'm not sure what you might want to call that uh, but it does lay it is live on here i mean people before you know everything was shut down for singing um was, we had concerts and street music and um Lots and lots going on. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so you, um, when your family was really struggling, your dad was struggling to work. I know he also started, he kind of found his way into the music side of things also. Um, mm-hmm. I guess buying old banjos, refurbishing them, and then uh, selling them you know, in part to your mom's students. And at some point, um, feels like even so, where they are, it's just going to be too hard to try and make a go of it. So the whole family picks up and moves, I guess, first out to LA and then eventually, you know, 30, 40 miles inland from there to to the Claremont area where it, it's kind of interesting because if you think about that time, which I guess would have been the mid fifties, the idea of sort of moving first to LA and then moving to a you know, relatively small area, even though they're, they're you know, it's, it's the, the Claremont consortium area where there are a bunch of, of small colleges there. You know, to bring together a community of folk music players, it seems a little bit out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my father did have a lot of faith in him. I mean, the rug was pulled out from under him, which was a shocking thing for people that are competent and capable and accomplished. But he always believed he was a farm boy, grew up on the farm. He believed he could fix anything, learned about instruments, learned the physics of it. 
And so he had that in the back of his mind, I think. And But he knew that he would need a fresh start. You know, New England was just not going to make a home for him, especially with the New Hampshire family and his mother and all that. It just didn't feel, and this was by 1957, it just didn't feel like it was going away. And, you know, California, the land of milk and honey, you know. So he picked up and we moved. And and he knew that he had to have a job. He, he knew, you know, he did get himself back into teaching and he was a, a really good teacher. It, he, and I know this from tuning him out from a very young age. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, as, you know, as all good kids do. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, uh, but I, I watched him, I watched him teach so many people how to fix instruments and, um, who I learned and taken it off to the world. My mother taught them to play the instruments, took it off out into the big world. And, um, but he, it was just something they believed they could do, but he did start it as a sideline. He had an income coming in. My grandfather, Yudin, my mother's father, retired. They moved out and he ran the, sh- the shop and didn't really need money. So it could, it could be, it could run for nothing for a while. And uh, but it caught on like a wildfire. It was it was an, uh, it was amazing, and it was the times, and it was everything came together to work out for the best for the store. Yeah, I mean it. it you know, this becomes Folk Music Center, mm-hmm. which really becomes this incredible hub, not just for the Claremont musical community, but for kind of like the world, <laughs> you know, the, the, the world of folk, like all the major yeah. players, this becomes, it sounds like a, really a, a magnet where this is where everyone kind of comes through and comes by and stays and plays. Yes. And it worked out. You know, um, Ed Pearl would bring people from the Ashgrove. The Ashgrove is, was a very famous Southern California venue. And um, with the addition of the Folk Music Center and the addition of the um, Penny University out in Riverside, San Bernardino, it became a little mini tour so people could afford to come out. And like I said, you know, they stayed uh, in our house. And my mother, being a fabulous cook, was just that much more reason to come <laughs> and, and stay. And uh, it was a different feeling in time. I mean, these people were well known and they were well known on the college circuits and the festival circuits, but it's not like being well known now. You know, they weren't wealthy and celebrities in across, you know, many groups. It was still a folk music audience. Yeah, and I mean, we're I guess we're talking about people like uh, like Pete Seeger, uh, Dylan, John Baez. Um, well, they're maybe a little different. I was thinking Brownie and Sonny. Right, and- <laughs> right. But I mean, back then, I mean, they were. They were definitely big names in in the yeah. world too, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, when you think about some of the way that people approach celebrity right now, it feels like it's celebrity very often without soul, without heart, and without grounding and values. Yeah. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. <laughs> well, a celebrity is its own thing, yeah. you know, and um, of course, you know, Ben came out of this background, and he was he's a celebrity. And he's well known uh, internationally, and um, you know it was something my parents had to come to accept, and and they they did of course, and he's kept his feet on the ground. But people say, "Oh my gosh, you must be so proud! Oh, were you surprised? Oh, this is so wonderful!" But the fact that he's made it in music doesn't surprise me at all. It seems very natural. He grew up in it. He's lived it, and um, and he's a, a musician, and he's a poet. And it comes from a long line of poets and musicians. and it. But the celebrity was its own thing. And that takes some getting used to. You know, it suggests that people want it. They want to be near it. They want a piece of it. They want some somehow to have it shine its warmth on them. And it's, it's, a, it's a difficult, it's, it's a little difficult to deal with sometimes, but you know, we've, we've learned, his brothers and, and I have all learned to just 
you know, smile and keep moving. <laughs> and, uh, um, but you're right. It's it's we're we're obsessed with it these nowadays. I I don't know if it's global or American, but there is an obsession with celebrity. Yeah, and and I wonder also whether you know one of the switches that had been flipped is this. There's now the notion that you can be famous for being famous, rather than the the notoriety coming from some great work that you've done, art that you, you know, like have toiled and for decades created and developed in skill and craft and offered to the world to, you know, so that the the notoriety comes from the work that you're doing and the effect that it has, rather than simply the mad quest to be known by as many people as humanly possible. Yeah. I, I feel like that's a really it's it's a different thing. It is a different thing. You're right. To have earned it to paid your dues. And I know I I know having I had that conversation with Ben with my with Joel and Peter my other sons my um you know you got to, you do it because you love it you don't do this because you want to be famous you know first you love it and then you know if you pursue it you might get the fame but you know when people come to me sometimes and how did you raise such artistic children it's like well don't don't try you know, <laughs> you, know <laughs> you know, be sure that's what you you want to do, for, you know, but I guess it was just all around them. Yeah. I, I mean, the, it sounds like the same way that Folk Music Center really became a second home for you, maybe even more of a first home, because it sounds like, you know, that was the place where you spent pretty much all of your free time as well as most of the family. <laughs> and, you know, for you, I guess you start to pick up an instrument in your mid-teens. Um, yeah, early teens, yeah. probably 13-ish, 14-ish is when I really applied myself. Yeah. I mean, for for you, was it something where you picked it up and, and you kind of said, this is what I want to do? Or was it just the type of thing where it's all around you all day, every day? There's so much access. It was sort of like a slow, organic thing where it just felt good and without any intention beyond that. Yeah. It was, it was curious and... It, I was obvious how much people enjoyed music, and um, I just picked it up and started started playing, eavesdropping on my mother's classes. She taught her guitar classes in the house, and uh, I'd pick up my guitar and play along. And it was turns out to be rewarding in my case. And you know, if something feels good, of course you want more. And uh, so I just stayed with it and. Uh, it kept on playing. I've, you know, played on and off forever. Yeah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. 
it. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Sounds like you started playing around with different groups and also different genres. I know there there was a, it sounds like a short amount of time in a little bit of country. <laughs> oh, I yes, I do. Well, actually, I, I love the country music back in the 70s, yeah. the early, early country. There's nothing like it. It's, it's people, it, it's people with hard lives telling you about it, you know, <laughs> and that's the blues and that's country and that's a lot of lullabies are the same you know, uh, plaintive and, and hard, hard times and lost loves and hurts and joys. And, uh, yeah, I, I do, I still in, enjoy listening to the, uh, to the country, old country music. It's, it's changed enormously, of course. Yeah, for it's sure. All kind of pop. I'm curious, what do you think it is about that particular storyline, whether it's blues, whether it's country, whether it's reggae, whether it's like, regardless of where it comes out of it is kind of interesting that that storyline of sharing hard times persists to this day Mm -hmm. and that you would think well people just want to hear music that lifts them up but there's something about that story that makes us keep wanting to hear it in a thousand different ways from a thousand different voices Oh yeah, I mean, if you're if you're hurting for whatever reason, you don't want to hear joyful music. You want something that shares your pain, I think. And you can always you can find it. That's what people that's what people sing and probably have sung about it for thousands of years, in uh, whatever for whatever culture they came from. I mean, there are fun songs and joyous songs and uplifting songs, but how many times is that what you look for when you're wanting to hear some music. Yeah, I think sometimes it's commiseration, right? Is the energy mm-hmm. we're looking for from the music or maybe even something that pushes us to the point that allows us to just really just get lost in the feelings, whether it pushes us to just sob. You know, yeah. if we're on the edge of that, maybe it's that thing that pushes us to actually fully embrace the way we're feeling and release it to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and it's empathy. Clearly, somebody else has felt like this yeah. at another time, point in time, and they're telling me about it. Yeah. So I'm not alone in, in what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You end up playing around. As you're reaching your late teens, in, in your mind, is being a musician or sort of like as, a, as a central devotion, is that something that you want to do? Is that the aspiration for you? You know, I'm not sure I ever really knew what I wanted to do. I just kind of fell into whatever came my way and it, you know, playing the guitar. Okay. I'll pick up a little banjo here and there maybe. And I'll play when it comes along. I don't sure, you know, you you think about being a star and being in center stage and all these people that love you, but uh, you also have to have the desire to do something other than just play music. I mean, you have to want to put yourself out there and take, what you get from you know good and bad and and be able to handle it 
and I don't, I don't know that I had the drive to become a famous person. And I wasn't that sold on being famous anyway. I'd seen it and I didn't always look that appealing. And uh, being, I suppose, an introvert and liking time alone, it just seemed like, wow, you got to deal with all these people all the time. Yeah, that's another curiosity, actually. I'm wired similarly to you. I'm what my friend would call selectively social, <laughs> which is a, a, very, a very kind way of putting it. Um, I, I might have to borrow that. <laughs> well, I, I borrowed it, so we'll just sort of continue the chain okay. of sharing. Great artists steal, right? Um, that's right. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I have been um, really curious about this also, you know, this other, you know, potential dynamic between people who are fairly sensitive, fairly quiet, fairly um, introverted, and yet at the same time um, have this deep desire to not just create, but perform and yes. be in community with others. And when you do that and you offer something that really deeply moves others, then you know there's often a desire back to really participate in your life more and more and more and more. And um, that had to be a really interesting dynamic for you. Yes, I, there are plenty of introverts that are musicians and famous, and it. I don't know that that red carpetish kind of thing or the meet and greets. I don't know if that ever gets easier. I just think I think it's something you learn to do if you want to further your ability to project yourself in that way on from the stage. You have to learn to deal with that, and it becomes part of part of the job. I think I would think uh, learning how to be up and to be on and to be friendly, you know, it's, it's a necessary part yeah. of that success till you reach a certain level, like, you know, Van Morrison or something where you can just, you know, turn your back. And <laughs> then, then you have your people. <laughs> and you have your people. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, we've been talking a lot about sort of like the forward facing side of music also. And while, while folks can't see this, you know, I'm, I'm looking at you and in your background, it kind of looks like you're in a luthier's workshop. Yeah, I am. I'm in the back of the store in the <laughs> workshop. <laughs> yeah. Because it, it sounds like that's a part of you as well, is, is not just the playing side, but a love of the instruments themselves and like really deepening into working with them and understanding them. Yes, I did. I, I spent several years working in the workshop. I studied with a person, Jack Willock in Glendale, and um, he had worked for the Gibson factory for a, a long time. and. Um, shared his knowledge with me and I do, I loved it. I like that working with my hands and really being involved with the instruments themselves. I didn't stay with it. I guess there's enough of a draw, you know, to the social, to the, to the light, to the, you know, the, the shop doesn't have windows and, <laughs> but I don't know. And I've also had a kind of torn between the music and academia. I, I was a, a student who got by doing as little as possible through high school and college. But when I went back to school as an adult, I liked it. I liked that world. So, you know, I, like I say, I haven't had a direct path, a direct shot to any direction. But uh, but I am. I am sitting in the Luther shop and there's a, you can see there's all. There, there are some gorgeous looking instruments <laughs> behind you. <laughs> Yeah, some of them I staged just so you wouldn't see a little bit of the mess that was on the. <laughs> it's either clean up the mess or, but yeah. Well done with the staging. Uh, definitely <laughs> caught my eye. Um, I, uh -huh. I I had this beautiful experience. I guess it was close to three years ago now, where I actually uh, spent the better part of a month um, working with a luthier out in around Amish country in Pennsylvania to to build a, an acoustic guitar myself, and it was one of the most immersive and rewarding experiences I've ever had in my life just to sit there, you know, working 13 hour days with short break for lunch, but it felt like I blinked and, and the day was over. Um, just completely lost in the process of working with your hands. I think there's something kind of magical about that. And it's also the creativity, you know, when that happened, I mean, that's such a wonderful feeling. I get that feeling when I'm writing a song or, I'm, or when I was writing the book or I write, I write lots of stories, family stories and so on. It's like you you, you lose track of time, you know, and that's when you're you really that creative energy kicks in. And it's, um, I mean, the, the fellow here at the Claremont Grad School who studied it calls it being in the flow. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's what it is. And, and you actually get annoyed when you're interrupted. 
I have felt that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What did my father, he used to say something like, well, you know, genius is everywhere. There are a lot of geniuses, but if you can be a genius with constant interruptions, then you really are a genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still haven't figured that part out at all. So, um, <laughs> the, so as, as you know, you're sort of, you're moving through life. You end up also then married, you have three kids. Um, and, and it sounds like this was a really, it was an inflection point for you also because you knew the life of of a musician and touring and being on the road and sometimes instability. And you know, it sounds like you sort of made the call and said, even though this is in me, at least for this season, I need to make a different choice. Yes, that's true. I did. I made a very conscientious choice, you know, really weighing, you know, what makes me happier? You know, I, I love to play the music. I love being out there. But if my kids are miserable, that's worse than the pleasure from that. You know, it, it was a balance and um, it was probably an okay choice. I, I don't, I don't regret it. I don't know, you know, with kids, they, how they would feel. I mean, they probably would have, I, I might as well have pursued my career. I don't know, you know, kids grow up and go away. But, but I, I do think that it was the right choice for their time, for me, for them, for, for uh, what was happening. Yeah. And I mean, you're, it's, it, it's also not that like you entirely walked away from the world and the culture and the community of music. I mean, it, it remained a part of your life and then it, it remained a really big part of your kid's life as you were bringing them up. You know, it sounds like they, they pretty much, I've heard Ben describe, you know, him almost using the same words as you saying like, effectively, I grew up um, in folk music center. Like that was my home. They, they did. <laughs> they did. They'd come in after school and plop down and supposedly do their homework and <laughs> and uh, snack and just partake i mean be they were just part of it you know i was working with parents so they they just had to be part of that scene they just you know it wasn't the focus wasn't necessarily on them and they were part part of this living thing that was going on um and it sounds like it created just a, a really beautiful oasis you know what one of my curiosities also i know is as you're raising a family, not too far in, into this experience, you end up a single mom raising three boys. And you're also in a town which is, from my understanding, predominantly white. You're a white Jewish woman raising three biracial kids. Tell me about this experience. Oof. Um, yes, I um, met and married Leonard, uh, African-American. He played congas and um, really a brilliant man. And he was working in uh, in the colleges. He had been assistant director of admissions and then became director of financial aid and and had had a drinking problem since he was in high school, as it turned out. And um, so little was known. I didn't know alcoholism. I wasn't familiar with it. I, nobody in my world drank over much other than, you know, some wine with dinner. And uh, there just wasn't much known at the time there weren't all these rehab centers and i remember one time i was sitting in i think a doctor or dentist's office and i picked up a lady's home journal and there was a quiz and it said 10 uh things that show if you're an alcoholic you know here's the 10 signs of alcoholism and if you check more than this many then you are an alcoholic if you check this so i thought well you know because of course he was drinking and i started checking and Remember, I, I had it was eight out of ten, and I thought, well, it's eight; it's not ten, you know. <laughs> and there's and the, the denial that goes along with it, his mind, you know. But it's so destructive; it was just a destructive addiction that he couldn't just couldn't leave. And um, so, yes, I made the choice to be a single parent and raise the kids, and. Um, well, I was told by people, you know, counselors at the school, you can't do it. There's just no way a white woman can raise three interracial kids. I said, well, that's wrong because I don't have a choice. And of course I can do it and did. You know, and there's, a, I mean, it was tough, you know. The, the, the women I knew, the African-American women were raising these kids and struggled with this a lot of the same. But there weren't men there. I mean... You know, we were all single, 
And many in, in the 70s, it was like a wave swept through of divorce. And so and there were a lot of white women and women of color. And we were single and we were raising these kids and doing the best we could. And uh, I don't know, you know, there's lots and lots of incidences, you know, in awakenings for me, you know, we were somewhat protected. We were known in the town. So mostly, you know, it was fine, but I had an experience. So I'm driving from our house to my parents. It's probably a mile away. And all of a sudden a police car comes up behind me and um, pulls me over. And he says, do you know what you did? And I said, no. And he said, you rolled to a stop. I have to give you a ticket. And the kids are in the back. They're probably seven, five, and three or something like that. You know, Mommy, what is the policeman saying? Mommy, why is the policeman talking? Mommy, Mommy, what's the policeman? And he leans in the window. He looks at him and he says, yeah, it's police now, but it'll be pigs in a few years. And the kids are shocked and say, what What pig? Mom, Mommy, what pig? And I said to him, you know, I, I have raised my boys to... Uh, respect the police. And he backed off and he said, well, I'm going to let you go this time. And it was a small incident, but it was a realization of what needed to be said, you know, that the, what, you know, the lessons that they would have to learn. Hmm. So, you know, if that makes any sense, if that's. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's also, you know, it's interesting to hear those stories also, because, you know, that's, it's a season in time, you know, we're having this conversation in 2021 um, mm -hmm. and we're talking about decades ago and we've seen so much change. And then we've also seen so much not change. <laughs> Isn't, yeah. You know, and, and we're in this moment in time right now where I think a lot of people are hoping that something is about to be different. I know. I hope so. I hope so. We thought it was going to be different back then, you know. I guess have to keep fighting the fight and participating in the struggle. Yeah. And, and that is the emergence of, you know, you've got generations of experience doing that in various different ways. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You mentioned you went. You ended up actually going back to school, to mm -hmm. grad school. What was driving that decision? Well, I'd been playing music. I'd been playing out every weekend and playing and playing and rehearsing. And I, I loved it. But I wanted to go back to school. And, you know, I read a lot. And uh, so I just, I made the choice to try. I said, I'm gonna, just going to go and do it. And then I loaded, I was so overloaded with stuff to do. That I did leave the store, and which was excruciatingly hard, but um, I did for a time. And um, I went to school and I did well, and I enjoyed it. And I just went straight through. I got my, my BA and went pretty much straight on through and got a PhD. I did teach public school for a while and then uh, got a PhD in education. Yeah. 
here's a curiosity. You mentioned that um, school was absolutely not your thing when you were younger. When you go back a little bit later in life and you do really well, how does that feel to you? <laughs> well, you know what I realized, which I somehow never knew as a younger person, said it really makes a difference if you pay attention in class. <laughs> There's that, yes. <laughs> How did I not know that? <laughs> but but uh, it did. And um, I and it also, again, it would go back to that a theory of flow. But, you know, th th just that focus, being able to just have a project and focus on it. It feels good. It makes your brain feel good. And that can be songwriting or it can be writing a dissertation or painting a picture. I mean, there's... Uh, but that, that is something that I seek out, is that feeling of being completely immersed in whatever the project is. Yeah, and it sounds like you were able to find that to a certain extent in, in education while you're, when, when you sort of came back to it in, in, a, in a different place and with a different lens. Mm -hmm. Yes, I did. Yeah, so while this is all happening in the background, your kids are growing up, Ben's going out into the world, your son, and starts to really get traction, become well-known as an artist. And you're sort of moving between teaching, um, the folk music center, the community, playing. You and Ben come together, well, I guess it was maybe 2013-ish, to work on creating an album, um, Childhood Home. Or was it 2014? I think it came out in 2014. Right. So I'm assuming you guys were working on it for a yeah. while before that. <laughs> oh, no. no. No, we were not. All right. Tell me more. <laughs> Well, you know, the first time we sang together was when Danny Clinch was filming Pleasure and Pain. Right. Came out to the house. That was, what, 99, 2000, I want to say. Right. So it's like almost 15 years before this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He came out, and I got a call in the morning uh, from Ben saying, um, I'm coming out with the film crew, so pick a song. We're going to sing it together for the, you know. So, okay, we did that. And then after that, we thought, you know, Ben said we should do an album. I thought, yeah, we should do an album. And we talked about it on and off. And and then, uh, you know, he had, you know, he's got a really busy life. And he's got lots of projects and things on front burners and back burners. And I was pretty busy, too. And um, I got a call from him saying, hey, you know, I've got about 10 days. Let's uh, do an album. Come out to the studio tomorrow. And I was like, okay. And <laughs> find somebody to run the store, find somebody to look after the dogs. Da, 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 da. And yeah, we did that pretty much 10 songs, 10 days. I mean, we did have a break because he, I think he had some touring and came back and we finished it up. But uh, yeah, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience of that coming together. And we both had songs, um, but we hadn't played any of them together that weren't on the album until we met in the studio and put them down. Yeah. I mean, beyond the experience of just sort of co-creating this thing with your son, I would imagine you also both showed up, you know, you both have your, your strong individuals. You have, you know, you have your own lens, your own point of view, your own voice, your own stylistic approaches. I imagine it must have been really interesting to sort of like spend 10 days intensively seeing how these two things <laughs> dance or maybe don't dance so, so well. Yeah. The times. yeah. Well, you know, there's no way I was going to get around being mom, right? you know, and, um, but really, uh, Ben was the producer and Ben was the more experienced singer, songwriter, producer, arranger. And really I, I did and was more than happy to defer to his, his decisions. And, uh, and that, I think that's what, that made it work. Cause I could, you know, you, the, you know, the mom-son, it gets in the way. You just, we're both professional. We both know how to do this and you do it. And it's like being in the studio with a really, 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 really good musician. And that's, I mean, I, at least that's my perspective of Ben. And I guess Ben felt that was competent anyway. Yeah, that's amazing. You guys ended up touring for a while after that album too, right? We did. We did a, a couple of small tours and um, went, went to Europe and then done a few things. We went to Portland and did, oh, we did a few things. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, if it isn't fun, it's hard to keep doing it. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, and then more recently, you came out with a solo album. I did. 
yeah, light has a life of its own. Right. Um, just a bunch of songs. I just I wanted to do it, and you know, there's nothing like being in the studio and uh, just layering on stuff and taking it off and putting it together and arranging it, and it's a really rewarding experience. And I uh, have a wonderful uh, sound engineer, John Crawford. Yeah, that was a great experience. And then I it was mixed and master in the, by the same people that did childhood home now you know i i do like to write songs and it's usually something that's on my mind that i'm thinking about and i just the way i can work through that is to just put it down yeah and maybe make it rhyme i'm wondering um listening to that and knowing how much music has been a part of your life i guess i'm almost curious why there wasn't a solo album before this well, I guess it just wasn't time, the right mm. time for it. Uh, I hadn't put the energy into it. I'd Like I say, I'd, I'd written songs and sung them and sung them with just the local folks and here in the store and out at a festival. But it just, once I did, went through the process with Ben, I thought, oh, now I know how to do this too. Mm. And, and I can do this. Got it. So that, that was almost like a little bit of a, a gateway experience. Okay. Yeah, I guess you could go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It um, it's interesting too. You know, you get so involved in 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 your songs and your writing and the album and the, but to go back and listen to it years later is is a whole other experience. Sometimes if it comes on, a song comes on, it's like, oh yeah, that kind of sounds pretty good. You know, <laughs> and you lose your perspective. I think when you're smack in the middle of it. Yeah, a hundred percent. I I don't know that so much from a music standpoint. I know it from a from a writing standpoint. I'm a, I'm I'm a writer, so I know it from the uh -huh. the writing standpoint. And I look at books that I've written in the past, and some parts make me cringe, <laughs> and and other parts I reflect. I'm like, that was solid, you know. Yeah. And actually, you know, I'm pretty proud of certain things, and others yeah. I just want to pretend they never happened. <laughs> it's so true. I know because when I I wrote the book. You know, in the book, is, you know, it's edited and you reread it and you rewrite it and you edit and you, but, and I was so used to reading it for what could be better, what could be better. And then once it was an actual book and I got my author's copy, it's hard to just read it as a book and not think, oh, why didn't I say that? And then there's other parts that I think, God, did I say that? Wow, <laughs> I'm pretty smart. You know, uh, it's, it, it's, it is, it's a really interesting experience. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I mean, so you have this beautiful new book out now and mm -hmm. it's fascinating also because it's, you know, it's, it's memoir for sure. You know, it's your story. It's the story of your family, but there's also, it's this really rich perspective on the entire, on the world of music, the, the folk music um, scene, the music itself, the community, the people within it. So it's this beautiful deep dive into both understanding you but also really like touching down in the world of folk and its evolution over the years. Well, it's, it's good to hear you say that. I, I wanted that to, kind of, to come through because my, me, my family, we were a part of this, this world around us. You know, we didn't just happen in a vacuum. And I wanted, and I hope it worked, to provide some history and context for who we were and what was going on. Yeah. When you think about a book also, um, and this is something I've learned, you know, you work very often for months on this one thing, probably not dissimilar to an album, but I feel like it's different these days in that when a book is out, it's out. It's pretty much never changed. It's never re-edited. You know, you don't have the opportunity to, to play it differently every time, you know, you're in front of a, a, a room of people. It is what it is and it's in the world. <laughs> and I would imagine, you know, it's a different experience for you emotionally, psychologically of, of sort of like wrapping your head around putting this thing out into the world versus music, which very often can be changed and evolved and, you know, played differently over time. It's a good way to put it. I'm not sure that I had actually put it together like that. So it's good to hear you say it, but, uh, but yeah, I, I know I look at it and I think, you know, that this is it. It's black and white. This is the book. And, you know, I, as, as like I said, I, I I'm a committed reader. I read everything that comes by me, and um, and the thought of writing a book is just 
uh, incredible. I could, I could never do, you know, who could do that? And so when I was offered a contract, it was, it was just a thrill and stunning. And, but then, then here you have this thing now, <laughs> what do you, how do you look at that? I mean, what do you do when you wind up with this product? Yeah, You know, I'm, I'm really weird. I've learned in that um, I'm driven to make things and, and it finds a lot of different creative expressions. The process of creating it for me is the thing that nourishes me. The thing itself as a social object, once it's done, I'm oddly disconnected to. Uh-huh. One of the only things where I haven't felt that way is actually, interestingly enough, the guitar that I built. And mm-hmm. maybe because I can keep revisiting it and playing it and, you know, hopefully bring myself a little bit of joy through the process. Whereas I don't think I have ever reread a book that I've written once it's in print. Like I'm proud of it. I'm happy I've done it. Yeah. And the process, even though it can be really hard, I really enjoy. But I don't do it for the purpose of the thing. And I think I probably don't think about the fact that there's this thing that is not really changeable that's going to be out there forever. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad I asked you because that's the same thing, you know. Oh, I, no kidding. I, yeah, no, and and you're right. Uh, it, uh, it's just great to hear you say it. It's being in the process of writing it, and I don't know, perfecting might not be the word, but making it say, saying what you want to say, and uh, is is what makes you do it. That's the driving force. Yeah, same thing as music, right? You know, like you, yeah. hear, you hear the licks in your head, but it might take you years to make it come out of your fingers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it is, um, writing is really a, an all-absorbing enterprise, and I really like it. I, I learn a lot, I think. Right. Well, this feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So, um, spending time in this container, the Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase, to live a good life, what comes up? For me, I feel like I'm living a good life. And um, I have enough to, you know, to subsist. I live okay, Maslow's hierarchy. But um, it's being able to enjoy getting up in the morning and doing what you do, whatever it is, and not dreading the day. So how you achieve it, it's going to be different and it's going to be harder for some people than others. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. T-Y-P-E.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.